Well, here at Calvary Bible Church, we believe that one of the, 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 the biblical essential mandates of shepherding the church of God is biblical counseling. We believe in biblical counseling. We believe that since, since the word of God is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness, it is most powerfully and effectively administered in the local church. And all God's people said, you should say amen at that. We don't send people to the psychologist down the street. We bring the word of God to bear because it is sufficient for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And there's a lot more that can be said about that and has been said about that uh, by others. But I think the best way to demonstrate the fact that I just shared with you is by showing you the genius of the Word of God when it comes to very, a very practical and uh, troublesome issue that all of us have experienced. One thing that sinners are expert at is creating discord and disunity. We argue, we quarrel, we actively sin against one another in word and in deed and in all of our relationships, they all become chipped and fractured and broken. This is true in marriage. It's true in, at your work site. It's, it's true in ministry. If you're a missionary, you've experienced it on the mission field. It happens in parenting and marriage and even in the church and even in our fellowship with God. We tend to live in a in a perpetually unreconciled state. In fact, it's no overstatement to say the entire world lives in a perpetually unreconciled state with other people. And I would dare say that 90% of the people who have come to Calvary Bible Church and got me as their counselor, I can tell you that 90% of them came because of some kind of unreconciled relationship that was taking place in their home. So if you're a sinner and a follower of Jesus Christ, how many of you are sinners? How many of you are followers of Jesus Christ? Good. Maybe there's a few that I need to talk to afterwards. But if you're a sinner and a follower of Jesus, you need to learn how to bring about reconciliation between people who can hardly stand to be in the same room together. I'm here to tell you, even though that may be it may sound a little daunting. Uh, this is not just the job for the pastors of this church. It's for, it's for everyone in the church. We need to learn how to reconcile when sin has caused damage to a relationship. And the reason I'm, I'm encouraged about this is because God has given us everything we need in his word to reconcile people if they are willing to be reconciled. So there's lots to talk about here this morning. I'm not going to make it through it all. Uh, the notes kind of cover everything that I wanted to cover, although there's only um, uh, short sentences in there you're going to have to maybe fill in along the way. So let's begin by defining forgiveness. So the main topic for this morning is forgiveness, the kind of forgiveness that brings about reconciliation. So let's talk about a definition. The primary Greek verb translated forgive is a fiami, and it means to send away, to send away or to release. It, it means to pardon. 
But forgiveness, rightly understood, has been described as a promise. It's a promise because when God forgives his people, when he pardons us, he makes a promise. And that promise is, I will never remember your sins against you. When God forgives, he forgives with a promise. I will never remember your sins against you. Now, you've heard the phrase forgive and forget, and uh, we think of texts where, where God says he takes your sins and throws it as far as the east is from the west. And you might think that God forgets your sins. Can I just tell you, this may be theologically shocking, he doesn't forget your sins. He does something better. He remembers them, and he chooses not to remember them against you. This is, this is what we see again and again throughout the Old Testament. We see it in Jeremiah 31, 34. The Lord declares, I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, how is it that he remembers our sins no more? Does he have some kind of divine amnesia? Well, no, of course not. God is omniscient. That means everything that is, he knows. Everything that could be, he knows. He knows your sin. It's just that he chooses not to remember it against us. This is wonderful news. And this is precisely what God requires us to do for one another. It's not that we forget one another's sins. Uh, eventually, maybe you forget some of the sins that have been committed against you. But more importantly, we are called to not remember them against the person who has committed that sin. And so the best definition that I can think of, by the way, Ezekiel 18.22 and 33.16 also addresses the same issue. So the best definition for forgiveness that I have is, is simply this. It is a promise of pardon it is the canceling of a debt owed. It is the canceling of a debt owed. So this is the definition of forgiveness. Now let's talk about the need for forgiveness. Man, men and women, boys and girls, everyone on the planet needs forgiveness. In fact, man needs forgiveness on both sides of salvation. Both sides of salvation. The forgiveness needed... Before salvation, we might call judicial forgiveness. Judicial forgiveness. We call it judicial forgiveness because God sits on his throne. He is the holy judge, and he is the one who is the arbiter of all judgment as is appropriate. And so if God is going to forgive us, he, he needs to do it as our judge. And you say, well, that sounds rather judgy. But herein lies our hope. Because when we think about God and his justice and his salvation, we can't help but, but realize that what he's, he's actually talking about is a concept called justification. It's a legal term by which 
God justifies the ungodly. Let me just refresh your memory on this, Romans 4, 3 through 8. Let me read this for you. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. But now to the one who works, his his wages are not counted as a gift, but what is his due? And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. By the way, that's one of my favorite phrases in the New Testament. This is where God refers to himself as him who justifies the ungodly. That's our hope. We continue here. His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. This is David quoting from, or Paul quoting from David in the Old Testament. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. We need God's forgiveness. Consider Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And Paul again writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of that debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is set aside, nailing it to the cross. You know why God doesn't remember your sins against you? It's because he nailed them to the cross of Christ. Okay, I'm going to ask you to sing with me. We're going to jump right into the middle of this song. But I want you to hear it as you sing it. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We don't have time to sing the chorus. But this is what the Bible teaches. No wonder it can be well with our souls. This is the kind of forgiveness that secures your salvation. The forgiveness needed after salvation, we could call parental forgiveness. Because God is now not our judge any longer on this side of salvation. He is now our loving Father who wants to free us from the temporal discomforts of his chastisement. Isn't that a beautiful thought? God wants to soften the blow of the chastisement that you daily feel as you sin. He loves you. He is 
Not our judge anymore. He is now our father. Matthew 6, 12. This is a famous passage. You know the Lord's Prayer. And here's part of what it says. Our father, we'll skip to the end of that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And 1 John 1, 9. And by the way, the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, he doesn't say, oh, our judge. No, 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 no. Our father. This is parental forgiveness. And 1 John 1, 9 is also parental forgiveness. It's not described this way, but you know this verse. If we confess our sins, he, your father, is just, is faithful and just to forgive us, give us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So mankind needs God's forgiveness. And we receive that forgiveness not by works of righteousness, but by the grace of God who will freely forgive your sins if you come to him in humble faith. My friends, the thing that mankind needs more than anything else is the forgiveness of God. But we need not only divine forgiveness, we need human forgiveness. We need man's forgiveness. We are to forgive one another just as God has forgiven us. Ephesians 4, 32, and Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. You know what forgiveness to your brother and sister together, right? What does that look like? Start with understanding how God has forgiven you. And you will understand your duty in forgiving one another. Colossians 3.13, bearing with one another. And, and if anyone has a complaint against anyone, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So also you must forgive. The wording here is kind of, kind of choppy. It's because he's trying to emphasize the reality that since we have been forgiven, we must forgive. Forgiving one another as God has forgiven us means we promise that we will not remember their sins against us anymore. We cancel the debt just as God did for us. And this is what it means to forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. Clearly, God commands us to forgive. But let's think about Let's think about forgiveness a little bit more deeply and a little more practically. This is where it's going to get really practical, and um, you're going to get hurt, and so am I. This is going to be painful, and that's okay. We need it. So, here we go. Let's talk about, first of all, why we should forgive. First of all, we should forgive because we were created to show the world what God is like. Now, I know you've heard us talk about this before, so I don't want to belabor the point. Actually, I do want to belabor the point, but we don't have time. <laughs> we were created in God's image. Why? We were created in God's image, Genesis, right? So that we will show the world what God is like. And we can expand that and say not only what God is like, but what Jesus is like and what his gospel is like. We should forgive one another because we were created in his image to show the world what he's like. Matthew 26, 27 through 28. 
And when he had taken the cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. What's the point there? The point is, this is how Jesus deals with us. He sheds his own blood for the sins that you committed. Beloved, this is what God is like. This is what Jesus is like. This is what the gospel is like. Whenever I come to him with a broken heart over my sin and ask God to forgive me again, probably for the same sin that I confessed the last hundred times. And I always discovered that before I ask, he's already forgiven. Friends, this is the core of the gospel. That Jesus poured out his own blood so that we can have forgiveness. We exist to show the world what Christ is like and what his gospel is like, so consider this. I want all eyes up here for just a minute. I want you to consider this. You are never more like Jesus than when you forgive. You are never more like Jesus. Not when you come to church, not when you read your Bible, that's easy. Not when you sing God's praises, that's easy. You know what's hard? And the greatest act of worship that you can probably give to the Father is to do what he does. He forgives. You'll never be more like Jesus than when you forgive. And you're probably never more like the other guy when you come with hateful accusations and are unwilling to forgive. Secondly, We should forgive, not only because we exist to show the world what God is like, but secondly, because we remember how much we have been forgiven. Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Or here, the next one, by the way, the next one in your notes, I think, is Colossians 3, 12 through 13. Just scratch that out and write in Galatians 1, 13. Here's where Paul says, For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. Paul never forgot the depth of his sin that Jesus forgave. We should be forgiving because we remember how much he forgave us. This is so important. The third reason we must forgive is this, because we are warned of the consequences of not forgiving And forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You see, beloved, our 
for you to forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you your trespasses. Now, but listen to the other part of this. This is the end of the Lord's Prayer. He says, But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I just want you to let that sink in for a minute. And right now, you should be saying in your heart, what, is, what does that mean? You know what my answer is? I don't know. But it's scary. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. James 2, 12 and 13 picks up this theme. James writes this, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over what? Judgment. Listen. There is a judge in heaven, and you are not him. As you will see as we go along, there is an appropriate place for you to address other people's sin, but you are no one's judge. Matthew 18, 32 through 35. Then, I wish we had time. You remember the story of the um, unfaithful steward who, if you dig into the, the text of this, he, uh, remember he squandered a lot of money? Jesus tells us if you do the math on the, on the, uh, on, on the amount of money he, he lost, 200, approximately 250,000 years worth of salary. 250,000 years of, of daily, the denarius, right? The, the, um, the, the wages of a, of a day laborer. 250,000 years worth. What, what does that mean? It means he basically, however he did this, it's impossible to know, but he basically lost, squandered the entire uh, national debt of their country or the national income of their country, their gross national product. He lost it. And so you see Jesus is using hyper, hyperbole. And, and here's, here's the end of the story. Then his master summoned him. You remember, this is, this is the guy who pleaded with the king to forgive him, and he did because he humbled himself and said, yep, I, I lost all that money, please forgive me. And then he ran outside and found somebody who owed, who owed him $20 and began choking him. Give me my 20 bucks. And here's how the story ends. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay back all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother, listen, from the heart. 
from the heart. So we've talked about the definition of forgiveness, uh, why forgiveness is, is so greatly needed. Thirdly, why we should forgive one another. And now, how, how we must forgive. And, and that's probably worded a little wooden. But simply what I mean, and let's, let's talk about how to do it. How do we do this? How do we forgive? And the answer, it, it, there's three parts to this, and I'm not sure we're going to make all three of them. But number one, we forgive transactionally. I want you to turn in your Bible to Luke 17, 3 through 10. And I've asked someone to read. Is that Jack? Jack. There's Jack. This is uh, Luke 17, 3 through 10. Go ahead, Jack. No, we don't have time for that. Hmm. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times, saying, I repent, forgive him. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and clothing for yourself properly? Serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink. Is he grateful to the slave because he did the things which were commanded? In this way you also when you do all the things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. So we call this transactional forgiveness because it requires a transaction to take place between two people. One person has sinned against the other. Uh, the other has been sinned against. And both have responsibility. Both have responsibility. If there's going to be reconciliation, both have responsibility. But before we consider their respective responsibilities, I need, to point, I need to point out a warning that Jesus gives us here at the beginning. And it's uh, a very few words. He simply says, be on your guard. Now, what does that mean? Be on your guard. You know what I think it means? I think Jesus is saying, put your seatbelt on, tighten up your crash helmet, put on some steel-toed shoes because you're going to get stepped on. And you're not going to like what I have to say. So be on your guard. Transactional forgiveness is really heavy stuff. And it's hard to do. But we must do it. So let's take a look at how Jesus teaches us to do transactional forgiveness. How to perform transactional forgiveness. Let's look at uh, the text and uh, I want you to follow along with this, especially here at the beginning. First, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If your brother sins, rebuke him. Now, the command to rebuke implies addressing the sin in a tentative way. Now, let me, let me throw a caveat in here. Jesus doesn't say that here. But God does say it in the New Testament in several other places, which I'm going to show you here in a minute. So just put that in the back of your mind. you got to know this because in an effort to be biblical, sometimes we can be harsh. And we don't need to be harsh. 
we can deal with people's sins in a kindly manner. And so the command to rebuke implies addressing sin in a tentative way. You don't want to go to him and slap, slap him down with an accusation and a Bible verse. Husbands, don't do that to your wives. Don't, wives, don't do that to your children. Don't come down on them with a, with, with a condemning word and a Bible verse. You want them to grow up hating the Bible? Don't do that. Don't do that. You have authority to lead them. You don't need to abuse God's authority. First, if your brother, your, your brother needs to be rebuked, then you approach him tentatively. You may not know everything that just happened. You may have seen it with your own eyes, but you're interpreting it wrong, and a little more information may correct you. So walk into that, that discussion. You're, you're going to start that discussion, but do it in a way that's gentle. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, talk with him. Go to him. By the way, don't text him. I'm just telling you, I've seen that go all kinds of wrong. Don't text him, don't email him, don't Snapchat him, don't... I don't know any of that stuff, but don't, don't do it electronically. The text very clearly says, go to him. Go to her. Frankly, I think many relationships start running aground right here at this first step of forgiveness. Often a man I've seen will commit some minor infraction at home with his wife, against his wife, and she will immediately jump on him verbally as if he had set the house on fire intentionally. On the other hand, I have seen husbands, men, who were so quick to take offense, and, and, and he turns around and crushes his wife verbally, even publicly, for some small, untimely word. But beloved, this is, this is not the biblical way. This is the way the world does it. It's about retribution. It's about paybacks. It's tit for tat. That's not God's way. When your brother or your husband or your wife sins, go to him tentatively. Go to him in humility. Think about Galatians 1. Here's one of those passages that support what I'm saying about how to approach someone. Galatians 6.1, you know this. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in a fault, in a real sin, a real trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of what? Gentleness. And why? Each one looking to himself so that you too will not be tempted. Listen, isn't it true that, um, that the time that you are probably most apt to sin is after, immediately after you have been sinned against? This is a critical warning, isn't it? Um, Paul is saying, be careful. Be careful of your own heart. And, and how, do you, how you deal with the person who has sinned against you says a lot about your own walk with the Lord. And it says a lot about your understanding of the gospel. 
You see, practicing biblical forgiveness involves knowing not only what to do, the Bible even teaches us how to do it. This is the genius of Scripture. We don't need all of the psychological stuff. We have the Bible. The person who is sin may need to be approached, but we should do it in a spirit of gentleness and meekness, carefulness. And so here's a basic axiom that I, that I teach people as I'm mentoring them in biblical counseling. This, is, this has been so helpful to me. And you should memorize this. I would ask you to write it down, but I thought it was so important, I just put it in your notes. And here it is. Ready? When you approach someone, remember this. If you've got to approach someone, maybe it's your child, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife, remember this. Questions convict the conscience, but accusations harden the heart. If you want to make progress without muddying the water, remember, questions tend to convict the conscience, but accusations guarantee it's going to harden the heart. And so be gracious, be kind, be gentle. You might say to your spouse, sweetheart, is everything okay? <laughs> How many times have you said that, man? Everything okay? Is there, is there something that we need to talk about? Do you need some time alone to collect your thoughts? Um, honestly, my wife has the capacity to bring that kind of rebuke upon my life with a simple look, and it's like this. <laughs> I'm like, okay, just give me a few minutes. If you feel yourself getting defensive, you might just take some time to ask the Lord to show you any sin in your own heart that may have contributed to the problem. You may say, um, my wife is 95% of the problem. And I'll say, well, good. You have 5% to confess to your wife. Go do that and see how she responds and I'll teach you how to do it right. So we need to be careful to remember to get the log out of our own eye before we try to do microscopic surgery on the offender's eye. Don't try to do eye surgery with a chainsaw. The point is, if a brother or sister in the Lord sins against you in a way that breaks fellowship, you must confront him. But do it tentatively, with gentleness and humility. And, and the really beautiful thing here is that whenever two people are generally walking in the Spirit, this is all the further the transaction needs to go. Hopefully, when my wife gives me that look, that's all we need. Because I'm going to come back and say, uh, you know, you didn't say anything, but I heard you loud and clear, and I repent. I repent. Let's, let's talk about this. If I need to... Uh, ask forgiveness of the whole family, which I have on a number of occasions. Just do it. And if you do, and the response is biblical, which it often is for people who are humbly walking with their God, then, here's a phrase from Matthew 18, you have won your brother. You have won your wife. You have won your husband. You've won your child. 
Sometimes there's rebellion in, in, in homes because parents are sinning against their kids and either it never occurs to them or, or they're too proud to ask their children, their child, for forgiveness. The Word of God is telling you if you have sinned against your son or daughter, you must go to him or her. You have won your brother. Isn't that a precious phrase? Don't you want to be on that side of the equation? Because a person who is walking in the Spirit is going to be quick to acknowledge their own sin. And if that's you, then do it quickly. So Jesus says, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. Now, let's make, let's make another observation or two. First of all, to forgive involves making four commitments. And I'm just going to run through this quickly. Commitment number one, if you say, I forgive you, when someone comes and says, will you forgive me? And you say, yes, I forgive you. You're really making four commitments. And maybe you didn't know that, but I'm going to help you understand that now. This commitment number one, I will not remind you of this sin. I've forgiven it. I'm not going to remember it against you. I'm not going to, next time we have an argument, I'm not bringing that up. There's an exception to that, but we're not going to go into that today. Secondly, I will not mention it to anyone else. After the argument or after the, the interaction in which a sin was identified and repented of, you don't get on the phone with your girlfriend and say, I can't believe what my husband just did. And men, don't go to the office or to your buddy at church and talk about your wife's sin. Don't do that. You said I forgive you. That debt is canceled. You don't have any business talking about it anymore. Number three, I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. Now, that one's hard. That one's hard. They're all hard. And the last one is, uh, is I will never allow this to stand between us or hinder our fellowship. You say, I have the problem of forgiving, and then I find in my heart that I'm not forgiving. Uh, here, let me help you with that. You know, when Jesus says, repent and believe, it's in the present indicative active, which means repent and keep on believing. Re repent and keep on repenting. Believe and keep on believing. Same thing here. There are going to be times when you do find yourself dwelling on it. And you know what, you know what the Lord would say? Repent. Repent again. Repent again. Repent again. Repent and keep on repenting. The Lord is not going to be angry at you because you, the first try didn't work, didn't stick. It's okay. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows that we are but dust. And he gives us the capacity to, to keep repenting. The second observation is this. The only requirement for gaining forgiveness from the offended person, according to Jesus, is for the sinner, this is the only qualification, is for the sinner to offer verbal repentance. Verbal repentance. In other words, all the sinner needs to do to get your forgiveness is to acknowledge that their words and actions were sinful, and that they humbly repent. The way I typically teach people to do this is to say something like this. 
Uh, let's, let's just say it to my wife again. Honey, I, I realize that uh, when, I, when I said those angry words and I raised my voice and I stomped out of the front door, um, I realize that it was a sin against God and a sin against you. And I'm so sorry. And I need to ask you to forgive me. Will you forgive me? That's what we're called to do. That's how we're called to do it. By the way, this parallels the prodigal son who came back to his father, right? And he says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. That's humble repentance. I'm no longer worthy to be called your child. And what does the father do? He runs to the son. You're already forgiven. You're already forgiven. So this is why we call it transactional forgiveness. The person who is sinned, <clears throat> who was sinned against, lays out the charge, and then the person who committed the sin acknowledges that their guilty is charged, and finally, the guilty party asks for a very precious and undeserved gift. Will you cancel my debt? Would you just cancel it? I know what I'm asking you is huge, but would you forgive me? And by the way, it's not I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There's a place for that. And I just mentioned that in that model of how to do this. But I'm sorry is no admission of guilt. It is simply a cheap substitute for biblical forgiveness. And by the way, it's, it's not, I apologize. That's a worldly way of approaching this. Nowhere in the Bible are we commanded to apologize. In fact, the word apology <clears throat> to apologize means to make a defense. It's the root word for apologetics, which is the, the presentation of evidence to make a defense. No, 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 no. You're not, you're not defending yourself. You have fired your internal defense attorney. Shields are down. True forgiveness comes when a person acknowledges they've sinned against God and, and they've sinned against one another or a group of people and ask them for forgiveness. And by the way, it's important to note here that there is no such thing in the Bible as transactional forgiveness without repentance. If the sinner never confesses his sin, then the transaction remains incomplete and forgiveness does not really occur, or at least reconciliation doesn't occur. I remember one time when, uh, when uh, this lady, I think it was at my work, I've told this story so many times I can't remember when it actually happened, but a woman came and she accused me of something uh, that I clearly had not done. I was no party to what had happened. There was more people involved. And and, uh, and she was coming after me to try to admit that, that I had sinned. And, and, uh, and one day she just came to me and she said, I forgive you. That's not helpful. It's not helpful. It's not helpful because that's not transactional forgiveness. And to approach it like that is simply to nullify it. 
It's to, it's to make it worthless. Now, let's make another observation here. Jesus says, there is only one appropriate answer to the question, will you forgive me? Whenever the person comes and acknowledges his sin and asks, will you forgive me? The only biblical answer is, yes, I forgive you. Now, let me just throw in a caveat. You might say, thank you. Can I... Can I have an hour to think about it? Can I ask a few questions? I just want to make sure I know what I'm forgiving and get clarity on that. But at the end of the day, the end of the conversation, the answer is yes, I forgive you. Now here's a question, what do you do when he repeats the sin? And that's really a good question. If, the, if he sins against you, here's, here's what Jesus says. If, if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Forgive him. Now, let me, let me show you what that looks like. Ken Basinger, where are you? Come and help me with this. I always pick on Ken. We're going to do a little skit here that's going to emphasize this, okay? Because you, you're not feeling it. I can tell you're not feeling it. I'm going to help you feel it. I'm going to help Ken feel it. So here we are. So Ken, you know how to follow along here. He's done this with me at other occasions. And uh, so here we are. This is Pastor Dan, and um, this is my, my new, newly believing friend, Ken. Ken's been in jail Ken was a, was, a, was, a, was a mean dude. He was on drugs. He was addicted, addicted to various things. He gets saved, and he comes, to, he comes to church. And I'm thinking, you know, I want to spend time with this guy, but I really need to fix the fence out back. And so I got a great idea. Ken, why don't you come with me and help me uh, put this, repair this fence? And so we go out, and we get in this precarious situation where, where he's got to hold the nail and I'm holding the hammer, and I'm trying to be careful, and I, bam, and I hit his thumb, and he goes berserk, and he starts punching me, and, uh, <laughs> and he's, he's beating me up. I like this. Yeah, he likes his, his good therapy. And I'm saying, Ken, stop, what are you doing? And he says, oh, pastor, I'm so sorry. I'm, I'm working with a biblical counselor at the church. I just got this anger problem. I'm trying to get over it. Will you forgive me? And I say, all right, Ken, I forgive you. Okay, you work over here. I'll work over here. And uh, I pick up this board, and we're trying to move this big, heavy four-by-four, four, and I dropped it, and it lands on his toe. And his instinctive response is to punch me in the nose. Don't do it for real, brother. <laughs> And I fall down, and now I'm bleeding. And he says, Pastor, I'm so sorry. I really am trying to work on this anger problem, and us working together, I'm not sure it's going to work out. And I say, he says, Pastor, will you forgive me again? And I'll say, Brother, yes. Surely you're not going to do this again. And so I pick up a board. Oh, he asked me, will you forgive me? And I say, of course, brother, I forgive you. Just don't punch me anymore. 
and I pick up a board as I'm getting up to walk around. Like I do a little Three Stooges thing, and I turn, and the board hits him in the back of the head. And he punches me again. Bam, now he breaks my nose, and I'm laying on the ground, sprawled out, and I'm bleeding all over the place. And he says, Pastor, I can't believe I've done it. Three times in a row, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? And if the number that Jesus gave us is what he really wants us to think, I've got four more coming today. <laughs> okay, Ken, you can sit. Really? You got four more coming? If he says to you seven times in a single day, I repent, you forgive him. Listen, beloved, so many times I, I hear a brother or sister who went home after counseling convicted of their sin. They lay it out before their spouse, confessing that it was a sin against God and a sin against their spouse. They ask for forgiveness. It's granted. And then something happens. A few hours later, maybe a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, he does it again. He repeats the infraction. And the spouse who didn't commit the sin says something like, you hypocrite. I knew you didn't mean it in counseling that day. You will never change. My friend, that kind of response from a believer is just sinful. Jesus says, even if he commits the same sin seven times in a day, you return to him and say, I forgive you. And I want to suggest to you that Jesus is acknowledging that many times lasting repentance takes time. Often it comes and fits and starts. How many years has he had this problem in his, in his life? And we think that he's going to give it all up. In one day, sometimes by God's grace, that happens. I've seen that happen. But usually a person who truly desires to see complete repentance in his own life will fall several, maybe many times before he's finally free. You say, Pastor, Pastor Dan, this is really hard told you to put your seatbelt on. Pastor, this is really hard. This is unreasonable. Well, look at your Bible and, and see what the apostles say. The apostles said, said it even better. In verse 5, they say to the Lord, increase our faith. Are you kidding me? Lord, you're going to have to increase my faith. Remember what Jack read a little bit ago, that whole narrative there about the, the, uh, the slave and the landowner? Remember what he said? Hmm. He said, let me sure, make sure I'm not missing anything, anything. So he says, the landowner and his slave were out in the field. It's lunchtime. 
come in for lunch. And Jesus telling the story, he says, okay, how's this going to work out? When the master gets there, is he, is he going to start making lunch for his servant? No, no. No, no. What's he going to do? He's going to say, servant, come in here. Make my lunch. And make sure that I'm well fed. And then you go and change clothes and, and feed yourself later. And at the end of the day, though it's been a hard day and you've had little to eat, you should respond by simply saying, I'm merely a servant. I've only done what is required of me. Now, how does that fit into forgiveness? Here's how it fits, fits into forgiveness. Jesus says this. If your faith, they say, increase our faith. Jesus says, if you had the faith, the, grain, the size of a mustard seed, you'd be able to say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and, and planted in the sea, and it would go. What's he saying? He's saying, gentlemen, you say increase, my, increase our faith, you don't need more faith. What do you need? Where the rest of the story tells us this. You don't need more faith, you just need to obey me. I am the master. You are the servant. What do you mean when you say I cannot forgive? If you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would be able to say, I forgive you. This is hard, but it is what God requires. Now, there's a lot more that can be said here, and I seriously have a lot more notes. We've talked about transactional forgiveness. There's another kind of forgiveness. I call it attitudinal forgiveness. For example, what happens? What do you do if the person who sinned against you has died? Well, let me tell you what not to do. Don't go to the grave and talk to them. A couple of times in the Bible, people did that. Didn't go well. <laughs> Don't talk to the dead. You should talk. Talk to God. God, help me. God, help me to forgive him. And you may have to do that with your spouse. I want to give you an example of how to do this. The last of the three categories is do this prayerfully. Forgive prayerfully, and you'll see that in your notes. I think I gave you these examples. Um, let's see if I can get to it real quick. Um, by the way, at the end of this, I gave you the transactional forgiveness worksheet that just step-by-step step helps you to walk through that. And uh, let me see where the prayer is. I guess I don't even need it. Um, so here's what you say. You go to the Lord and say, Lord, you know that brother has sinned against me. And it really hurts. I, I can't hardly stand to be in the room with him. But I know that you've called me to forgive him from the heart. And so, Lord, would you, would you do something for me? Would you give me the capacity to share the sweet fruit of the Spirit? 
This is, this is for a person, I, I said the person who's dead, this applies to him too, but a person who's alive and just won't reconcile, the test of whether or not you've truly forgiven from the heart is the fruit of the Spirit. Can you be around that person, love him, have joy in his presence, peace instead of being at war with him? Just go through the nine fruits of the Spirit. The litmus test to know whether or not you are harboring bitterness is the fruit of the Spirit. And you know what? Because it's the fruit of the Spirit, you have the capacity to do this. And you have the responsibility to do it. And not only do we have the responsibility, but we have the capacity. We can do it. Therefore, we must. Oh, beloved. Let me see if I can get these last words from the Apostle Paul. Do you have your, um, well, I won't have time to find it. So, time's up. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful to you. We realize when we study these things that we have so far to grow. And yet, Father, we want our church and rejoice in the fact that, for the most part, there is much forgiveness and reconciliation that has happened here. And Father, we know that again and again we will need these truths as we interact with other sinners who are perhaps less sinful than we are. I pray that you would give us the grace to respond to being sinned against the way you would be most glorified. Lord, we ask you to do that for your glory, for the health of your church, and for our own great joy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.